can't understand eschatology without understanding the covenant because covenant is the foundation for everything that God did for Israel. He chose them to be the vessel through which his covenant purposes would be fulfilled. And throughout the historical books, we looked at how Israel entered the land. And when they entered the land, all the blessings of the covenant were given to them and they were contingent upon Israel keeping their end of the covenant. Now, the promised covenant that God made with Abram was not a, a bilateral covenant. In other words, Abraham didn't do anything. He, God went out of his way to say, I will fulfill my promise, which was blessing Abram's seed, making his name great, possessing the land, all these things. They were promises to Abram's seed, Abram's offspring. Then when God shapes and refines and narrows down and gets to the nation of Israel, they become the vehicle through which the promises to Abram's offspring will be fulfilled. So you have an unconditional promise that God will bless the whole world through Abram and his offspring. Then you have the vehicle through which that promise is set to come, Abraham's offspring, Israel, the nation. Well, God enters into a bilateral covenant with Israel, the nation, that is very conditional, very much so. And we saw throughout the prophets, the historical books, that Israel, if they did not keep their part of the covenant, God would remove his covenant blessings from them and turn them over to the nations that they were so enamored with. And those nations would come in and destroy them, which they did, because Israel did continue to rebel and break the covenant. But you had this tension. How would God get his plans fulfilled if the vehicle for, through which that unconditional promise was going to come about was broken? If Israel blew it, then doesn't that negate the promises God made to Abraham? And what we find out is no, because God promised that he would one day make a new covenant. And as we saw last week in the prophets, he would make a new covenant that would fulfill the original promise to Abraham that was unconditional. But it would not be like the covenant that he gave to Israel at Mount Sinai, which was conditional. That covenant would come to an end. That covenant would be finished one day. And a new covenant, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, a new covenant would be inaugurated that would do what the old covenant was supposed to do, but the people didn't allow it to do through their disobedience. So that's where we've seen, and we looked at some passages in depth about what all would happen. And I want to look at now, because the, the passages we looked at last week were from the prophets. Well, another type of writing in the Old Testament, and probably the one that has the most impact on eschatology, is the writings that come on the scene later, the apocalyptic writings. And there's a bridge between the prophets and the apocalypse writers found in Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a prophet. He writes in prophecy for most of his book. But towards the end of the book, Ezekiel's prophecy takes on a very apocalyptic nature. And, and it, it starts to become a segue that would, would develop into apocalyptic writing of the Old Testament. Now, I gave you a sheet that says interpreting apocalyptic writings. The first question that we ask is, what is apocalyptic writing? What is it? We, we mentioned it before, but it's always good to review because so many people assume apocalyptic means end of the world, and it doesn't. Apocalyptic comes from the word apocalypsis in Greek, and that means to reveal or unveil. 
That is a crucial definition to keep in mind. Apocalyptic writings are writings that seek to reveal or unveil what's going on in the world through a heavenly perspective. What's going on in the present and what's going to happen in the future. Now, some apocalyptic writings deal with the future in the final sense, meaning the end end, the end of days. Other apocalyptic writings deal with the end of the period that the people are in. In other words, under the reign of a tyrant king, it'll talk about the end of his reign. But it's, it's couched in language that's not always straightforward. Apocalyptic, the thing to remember, it means to unveil or reveal, and it is highly symbolic. If someone does not recognize apocalyptic literature as symbolic, they will interpret it wrong. That's just a basic fact because it would, it, it would be like interpreting the Sunday cartoon strip in the paper as editorial comment or as a news story or whatever. It's not. It's a whole different genre. It's cartoon. It's illustrated. It hasn't. Now, it may have editorial or political overtones to it. If you ever read Doonesbury back in the 80s, it's very political, but yet couched in a cartoon format. Well, apocalyptic is similar in that it's a type of literature, type of writing. And I want to read the quote. This is from the IVP Bible Background Commentary. What is apocalyptic writing? Apocalypses feature a narrative framework and often portray an angelic interpreter or guide alongside the prophet. The angel may take the prophet on a tour of heavenly realms to convey certain realities and activities. Alternatively, he may unveil a future time of trouble and deliverance. This literature operates by means of a broad spectrum of symbols using significant numbers and mythological images. It draws heavily on both biblical and extra-biblical literature. It tends to schematize. When reading apocalyptic, there are a couple of important guidelines to keep in mind. First, each detail does not necessarily carry symbolic significance. Even the details that do carry symbolic significance may not be transparent to us and speculating accomplishes little. Second, it's important to remember that the apocalyptic vision is not the message itself, but rather is the vehicle or occasion for the message. So for instance, the message of the first vision of Zechariah, chapter 1, verses 7 through 17, is not that there are going to be four horses of different colors in a myrtle grove. The message is laid out very clearly in verses 14 through 17. That's where it's interpreted. Apocalyptic is simply a medium. So, in apocalyptic writings, you get a lot of detail and detail on descriptions of things. You know, everything to the color of horses or the measurement of a certain structure or the precious stones that surround the throne of God or on and on. It's, it's very detail-laden because it is seeking to paint a picture in the mind of the hearer and later the reader. Most apocalypses were heard before they were read. We'll talk about this especially with Revelation because it plainly says so when you read it. So, all these details in apocalyptic writings invite or seem to invite speculation of in, or interpretation of the details. In other words, if we in our literature, if we are presented with a number of details including detailed measurements or chronology, uh, counting of months or days or years or whatever, in our post-scientific culture, that means the author wants us to be very systematic and comprehensive in understanding all those details. They're giving us the details so we can map, chart, draw out, 
connect the dots, fill in the blanks, however you want to put it. But in ancient literature, it didn't always work that way. The details were not always given, the details rather were given to build a cumulative picture rather than invite the reader to figure every single one of them out. So what about all the details? What do we do with them? Well, this is from D.A. Carson in the New Bible Commentary. He says, while it's important to try to interpret the historical significance of the vision, the fact that the revelation is given in a visual form underlines the importance of its appeal to the senses as well as to the reason. It's intended to create impressions, not merely communicate propositions. Apocalyptic is intended to give you a sense or a feeling of a vision. And anybody in here that dreams, which is probably most of us, you know that your dreams don't always flow in a linear chronological fashion. Your dreams are often bizarre. They're strange. You can be talking to someone in your dream that you know who they are, but they have the face of somebody different. And then all of a sudden you're outside of your house talking to them. And then all of a sudden they've turned into a giant monster and are running around and whatever your dreams are, depending on what you ate that night or what God may be trying to tell you, your dreams are, if anybody wrote down your dream, it would be almost impossible to find the specific intention of every single detail. Even if there is, even if there were significance that you yourself knew during the dream, for later readers to come along, it would be very hard and it, there'd be a lot of speculation. And so when reading Apocalyptic, we have to realize it's not like the letters of Paul, where he's giving a, a very eloquent and very rhetorically charged specific address to a specific situation with do this, do this, don't do this, and do this. Likewise, it's not like Torah that lays out the patterns of laws in, a, in an almost exhaustive detail that there's little or no imagination involved. It's very much just straightforward black and white. Apocalyptic doesn't work that way. And I'll read uh, Doug Stewart. He was, um, no, excuse me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, this, no, sorry. This is from uh, John Walton and Andrew Hill in, in their just came out last year um, survey of the Old Testament in the section on apocalyptic. They write the following. Much confusion is caused, however, by one's mistakenly treating the vision of a prophet as the message of a prophet. Understanding the message does not require an interpretation of everything in the vision or even an understanding of the chronological placement of the events in the vision. The features of the vision are incidental. They are not the message. Unfortunately, some interpreters place too much confidence in their ability to discern the meaning of symbols in prophetic literature and spend much time devising and defending such meaning. Yet it cannot be assumed that every object in a vision has symbolic value. And when the meaning of a symbol is not given in the text, the interpreter must be cautious in supplying such a meaning. It is possible that the symbolism is used to conceal rather than to reveal. Let's go back before apocalyptic. Let's just take a dream example in scripture. When God gave Pharaoh a dream, and in his dream, seven Cows were grazing beside the river, the Nile River, and seven big fat cows and seven skinny cows came out of the Nile River and ate the seven fat cows, right? That was the dream that he had, and it was very disturbing to Pharaoh. Joseph interprets the dream. God gives him the interpretation, and the interpretation is there's going to be seven years of plenty, but those are going to be followed by seven years of famine. Now, how would anyone, apart from God telling you that, get that that's what that means. Well, that's the whole point of the Joseph narrative. Nobody could understand it, but Pharaoh knew enough to know it was significant. 
You see this in Daniel's interpretation of dreams as well. Have, and we'll look at his in a minute, but, but the king has a vision, a dream. He's disturbed by it. He asks Daniel, and then Daniel reveals the meaning. And it's not something that you would just go, aha, that makes perfect sense. Only in hindsight can you see it. So that should give us pause when we look at dreams or visions that aren't clearly interpreted by God, that are left in the medium of dreams and visions. It should give us pause before we become dogmatic and start telling people which countries to invade or which stocks to buy or this and that. We should be careful. We should be cautious. The last one is, and this is the big one, and we're going to look at a specific example tonight, but what do apocalyptic prophecies tell us about current world events? Because that's why probably a number of you took this class, as you wanted to know what's going on in the world today in light of the Bible. And this is from Doug Stewart. He wrote, co-wrote How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. He's Old Testament scholar. And it's from his commentary on Ezekiel, the latter chapters of Ezekiel. When, when Ezekiel's describing, which we'll look at, the battle of Gog and Magog, or excuse me, Gog of Magog. And Doug Stewart writes the following. He's in the beginning of this section. He says, Because the identity of Gog is debatable, and Gog comes out of the north, Many people who know little about how apocalyptic prophecy is properly interpretive had tried to equate Gog with some modern northern nation. Since the communist revolution in Russia in 1917, American antipathy for the Russians has made them the prime candidate for identification with Gog, especially because of the mention of Rosh in 39.3. It's a Hebrew word, since Rosh sounds something like the first syllable of Russia. And Hal Lindsey makes this very clear in his late great planet Earth. Although, Stuart notes, not in Russian or Hebrew. So in Russian or Hebrew, Russia and Rosh don't sound anything alike. The communicator must help his or her audience to get beyond this misinterpretation. And a good starting place is one of the basic rules of interpreting Bible prophecy. Here it is. No modern nation is mentioned in the Bible. This does not, of course, mean that the modern times and characteristics are not mentioned in the Bible, but simply that the history of any particular modern nation is not a subject that God has chosen to cause to be incorporated into His Word. I'm going to read you teaching that I pulled off of the website of a prominent television personality. This was written just at the time when American forces took over Baghdad during the Iraq wars. This came out. It says, Teaching on Prophecy in Babylon. And the subtitle is, A Dream of Nebuchadnezzar Prophesied the History of Babylon All the Way Up to the Current Times. So here's what he says. Ladies and gentlemen, we just took over Babylon. The United States is now in the role of liberating a country known as Iraq. It used to be known as Mesopotamia the area of the Tigris and Euphrates. Then it was changed to Iraq, and now we're there. But it's the old Babylon. Okay, so there's the equation of modern Iraq with the old Babylon. Now there was a king of Babylon, that's the segue into Daniel. There was a king of Babylon who probably was their greatest king, about the year 586 to 590 BC. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. And he had a dream where he saw a statue. What he saw of that statue was a head of gold, arms and chest of silver, thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and then he saw feet of iron mingled with miry clay. And when it was all over, a huge stone cut without hands came and smashed down the statue. Nebuchadnezzar didn't exactly remember what the dream was, and he told his fortune tellers to give him the explanation. Tell me what the dream means. Nobody could do it. 
Finally, Daniel, the prophet of the Lord, prayed and said, God, what is all this about? So God showed him this statue and what it meant. He said, first of all, the head of gold meant Nebuchadnezzar. The head of gold meant that this was absolute power. The second was diminished power. Silver wasn't as powerful as gold. And the Medes and Persians were the silver because those people were bound by law. Nebuchadnezzar could do anything he wanted to, and that's exactly what Saddam says. What's the law? It's what I wrote on a scrap of paper. This is what Saddam says, apparently. But the Medes and the Persians, if they made a decree, they were bound by it. Following that was the empire of Alexander the Great. And you know, he had strictures as well. Not to mention the fact that he had an army that rebelled against him when he went too far. Following them were the Romans who were iron. They were very strong, but again, it was more tended towards <laughs> democracy. And finally, the feet with clay. This would be a mingling of the power of Rome and the miry clay. Now let's look on the map. Here's the current map of the Middle East as we now see it. And I think there would have been a picture here. This is from an email. That is the Middle East. Here is Iran right here. Here is Iraq right there. Syria here. And that's what we know. Now let's go back to Nebuchadnezzar and see what he saw on the map. This is the Babylonian Empire. You see that small amount right there? This is the Babylonian Empire. It didn't go up into Persia. It didn't take in Turkey, but it did take in Syria. And over here, these were the lands that they conquered. And they went into Egypt and fought, but they weren't very successful. Next, the Medes and the Persians came in, and they had a much larger empire. They extended all the way up to what we now will call Greece. They took in Turkey, and they took in Syria. They took in much larger scope, but again, a different empire. The next thing that the king saw was the empire of Greece. Alexander went all the way to the Indus River, which is now in Pakistan. They stopped at the Indus, and that's where they got the name India. But they came back over the Kojak Pass, back into Iran, and there we understand that Alexander got in a drinking match, and he died at about the age of 33. But his empire went all the way up into what is now Greece. It was right up into Europe and took in much, much larger scope of territory, including Egypt. So that was the empire of the Grecians. Beyond that is Rome. And the Roman Empire did not take in Iran, but it took in the entire Mediterranean all the way through Spain, up into England, and over the, Mediterranean, over the entire Mediterranean world. These were the great Gentile powers, and the Bible says that there are going to be ten kings after that, and they will be mingled with miry clay. So they're going to be the Iron Fist of Rome, but a democracy. This is the situation that we have facing us. Now, the Ten King mentioned, that comes from a later chapter in Daniel, where Daniel talks about the rise of these horns, and from Revelation as well, where it talks about ten kings. Horns and kings both have highly symbolic meaning in apocalyptic literature, but this person says they are ten kings who are going to come later, and he takes the fact that the feet are mixed with clay in the vision that Daniel received to mean that they will have characteristics of Rome and democracy. Clay must equal democracy. I don't know how, but it's just said. It's not defended. So that's one thing to point out. And that this is the situation that we have facing us today. All right? So apparently that's what time we're in, the time of these ten kings and whatever. I want to show you a scripture that Jesus Christ gave us in the book of Luke. Here's what he had to say. They will fall by the sword and be taken as prisoners to all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of Gentiles will be fulfilled. The year 586 B.C. was the time that Nebuchadnezzar took over Jerusalem. And that condition lasted, ladies and gentlemen, until the six-day war that took place not too long ago. When did it happen? 1967. So it's almost 2,500 years we're looking at. This is A.D. The Jews took over Jerusalem for the first time since Nebuchadnezzar took it. Now, what is the significance of all this? All right. So, what he said is, 
1967 war, that's when Israel took over all of the city of Jerusalem. Now, before this, this is in 2006 or so, 2005. Before this, dispensational proponents, if you read them, said that it was the founding of Israel when Israel took back the land and, and finally became a nation. But the date's been pushed back to the 67 war when they recaptured kind of this area. And so. and so the point that he's saying is that that is the fulfillment of bringing Israel back into the land because they had not had control of the land from the time Nebuchadnezzar took over until now. According to the Old Testament, that's just simply not true. Israelites entered back into the land. They were let Cyrus, or excuse me, yeah, Cyrus of Persia allowed them to go back, rebuild it. They had kings, they had control. So it's not exactly true to say that, but again, it sounds exciting, and if things fit your theory, then you leave out alternative suggestions. So what does all this mean? How does America fit into all this? That's where this is the body of what he's wanting to get across. At this point of time, a, the 67 war, a clock began to tick. All right? A generation is 40 years, and a clock began to tick that said there's 40 years from 1967. He said, this is the generation of the end of the Gentiles. Now again, before 1988, this was said to be 1948. That's when the clock started ticking, and 1988, but that came and went. So then you say, okay, well, the date must be from 1967, 40 years. Now the Gentile powers went from Nebuchadnezzar through Persia, through Greece, through Rome. How does America fit in? Well, we are the heirs, in my opinion, of Rome. Who knew? We have a lot of the Roman culture. Britain was taken over by Rome. Our people have come from Rome. So what has now happened? But look at this. I think it's very interesting. Babylon is the head. This is the first major empire, and it's going all the way full circle back to Babylon again. And who brings it back to Babylon? None other than the continuation of the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. We now control Babylon. Lost me halfway through it. Uh, but, but making these connections, you see it's like this detailed laid out chart. What are we going to do about it? Well, we were discussing the matter of the so-called roadmap. Now, the roadmap, if you follow your politics, that's the, the deal that they're trying to get between Israel and Palestine to quit fighting. Israel, they divide up the land. The Palestinians that were there from the Middle Ages on get to stay there. And the Israelis who are returning from all over the world since 1948 get to stay there too. And they, there's peace. But they both can't have all the land. They have to share. That's, and so there's various ways that people have been trying to do that for half a century now. Uh, yeah, we were discussing the matter of the so-called roadmap. Now, what's going to happen now that the circle has been closed? We're back in Babylon, and this is the fulfillment, in my opinion, of that extraordinary dream that he had of these empires. But who finally crushed all the empires? It was the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was a rock cut without hands. This is reference to Daniel 7. Um, into Daniel's dream. Now, next, what do we have? I think this is very telling in my opinion. There's something called a quartet. A quartet. Who is a quartet? It's the UN. It's the EU, the European Union. The next is the former USSR, Russia, and it's the USA. We're, we're with pretty strange bedfellows here. The UN hates Israel. Who knew? Most of the leadership is Arab. The EU has been opposed to Israel all along. Okay. Russia has been doing deals with Iran and Syria and shipping them weapons and the U.S. has been the only protector of Israel. 
Let's look at the scripture from the book of the prophet Zechariah, which I think is extremely significant. Quote, For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. See that? I will gather all nations. All nations. What does it say? Against Jerusalem. Now, the thing about this road map that is so significant it is vague about the status of Jerusalem, but it makes it clear that the Palestinians want half of it. That's going to be the final battle. There's no battle of Armageddon, ladies and gentlemen. There's none. The Bible does not tell us there's a battle of Armageddon. That part's actually true. Good for him. The final battle is going to be Jerusalem and all of the nations, the UN, the EU, European Union, Russia, and the USA, the so-called quartet, are going to be moving in power against the Jews to force them into an untenable peace. Isn't it amazing that Jesus said Jerusalem will fall under the foot of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled? And we've just closed the circle on Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It's amazing, in my opinion, what's happened. And now, perhaps voluntarily or reluctantly, we've just joined this bunch of thieves all of Europe and Russia and everybody who go against the nation of Israel to frustrate the promise and the prophecy of Jesus Christ. So what does Zechariah say is going to happen? What Zechariah says when this happens, and all nations, he says, for the Lord will come and all of his angels, holy ones with him, and they will fight for Jerusalem. We're looking at some serious prophetic significance. Watch the year 2007, because that's 40 years after the Jews took over Jerusalem. But it's also 400 years after the first permanent English settlers started the United States of America. I pray, I pray that we won't get crosswise with the prophecy of God, but it looks like we're headed down the so-called roadmap as hard as we can go, driven by the Arabs, driven by the Russians, driven by the Europeans, driven by the United Nations, all saying, let's put the squeeze on tiny little Israel, and God himself is going to fight for Israel. Now, this is not out of the ordinary if you follow prophecy experts. I just mentioned that because he said, you watch the year 2007, you watch it, that's 40 years, that's a generation. Here we are, 2010. You got to update it. So now it wasn't the six day war. We got to figure another time. Well, some, uh, some people of these type, this type of understanding have hedged their bets and said, well, it, the clock hasn't started yet because Israel hasn't recaptured the original boundaries of the land that God laid out for them back for Joshua to conquer. So that's sort of a fail-safe way of keeping the prophecy just around the corner. But regardless, what you have here is a very famous, very influential uh, Christian television magnate still alive, so he's not the one you're thinking of if you think he's dead. That's not Jerry Falwell. Still alive, who is uh, known for making rash statements on other occasions. You probably can piece together who I'm talking about. And he's saying basically that America and Europe and Russia, by trying to get Israel to live in peace in the land with Palestine, by giving Palestine some of the land as well to live on, not to take anywhere and do something with, but to live on, that is rushing uh, America down the path of being against God. And so therefore, the thing to do in this situation is not to be a peacemaker, but rather to hold out and say, nope, it's their land and God will fight for them and we're not going to do anything because that would be going against prophecy. Now, all of that to say that these assumptions 
that modern nations are mentioned in Scripture are completely wrong. There's no mention of modern UN or, or America. People ask, where's America mentioned in the Bible? It's not. This same commentator in another letter sent out, there's a passage in Ezekiel that talks about the, the, the young lions of Tarshish coming to bring their wealth to Israel in the last days. And he says, well, Tarshish was a region far to the west in the Mediterranean. There's actually a number of places. It, it, was, it was not, you can't find one Tarshish. It wasn't one city. There are multiple Tarshishes. And he said the young lions of Tarshish, he believes, represent America because people that lived in that region of Spain migrated to America and ended up settling along the Mississippi River. So therefore, the young lions of Tarshish is a reference to America coming in. What I mean, you, do, you see, do you see the amount of speculation that goes into that? Because just as many of those people from that country still live there. So why isn't it that country that's the, you know, like it, it, what you have is people, especially modern prophecy experts, they, they want to see something in Scripture, and so you'll find it by making things fit the way you want it. It's not just an eschatology. It's, it's any theological debate. If you're, if you're, uh, if you're, let's say if you're a Calvinist and you, you believe that is the truth above anything, you're going to read passages that could possibly remotely be considered Calvinistic in that light. If you're not a Calvinist and you think Calvinism is the worst heresy in the world, you're going to read every passage that could possibly have anything to do against Calvinism in that light. The same thing if you're a young earth creationist. You're going to believe, read every passage in the Bible that possibly could allow for the earth to be six to 10,000 years old in that light. If you're an old earth creationist, you're going to read everything in that light. It's all, it all colors our reading. None of us can get outside of our own heads in how we read Scripture. But the good news is we can have other people around us reading and studying with us who are in their own heads, and we can point out to one another the, the assumptions that we bring to the text. And that's good. That's the iron sharpening iron process is reading and studying together rather than coming up with these, these just mind-boggling interpretations and then having to update them year after year after year. Like it said before, no true book of prophecy should have a second edition or a revision. If it's right, it's right. You know, The only, person, the only people that will be right in predicting the future are the last people who ever do it. I mean, they're the only ones who'll ever get it right because just by necessity. On the sheet that I've given you, week seven, biblical text continued. Now, there's no way we can read through because what we're looking at is Ezekiel chapters 34 through the end of the book. And Daniel, pretty much the entire book. And then Zechariah as well, most of the book. So there's no way to read all of the apocalyptic sections of scripture. But what we can do is follow along and see what each chapter presents. So I'd like to do kind of a walking tour of the chapters so that when you go back and read them on your own, you say, okay, what is this talking about? What's going on here? And more than anything, you get a big picture sense of what's going on. You, you, you get the overall storyline, so to speak. The end of Ezekiel beginning in chapter 34, is Ezekiel has the famous passage where, and, and God's speaking to Ezekiel through all this and saying, Son of man, prophesy against, in this case in chapter 34, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. 
prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? And then the rest of the chapter is an indictment against Israel's shepherds. Now, Ezekiel was a priest who was in exile among the first wave of exiles to Babylon. And so he was living and writing during the time when Israel was being destroyed and news was coming in of Israel being destroyed. And his counterpart, Jeremiah, was the prophet who was in Jerusalem at the same time, giving the Jerusalem perspective of the events. Ezekiel's in captivity, so his take on, he's in captivity with Daniel. Daniel would have been taken into captivity as well during that time. They're writing from Babylon. The images and the, the visions that they see have a, somewhat of a different flavor and have some things in common and start to get more apocalyptic as they go along. Well, in 34, the, the indictment is against the shepherds of Israel. Ezekiel, being a priest, would have been among those. In other words, this, God's telling him, speak to the leaders. And then what he promises to do is, verse 11, This is what the Sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out of the nations and gather them from the countries. I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land. There they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. And then look at the very next verse, 17. As for you, my flock, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will judge between one sheep and another, between rams and goats. He goes on and on. Reading this passage, this is one of those chapters that gets lost in the Old Testament, but this gives new depth to Jesus' teachings, first of all. When Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, readers would have heard Ezekiel 34, separating the sheep and the goats, which is what Jesus is going to talk about when he talks about Judgment Day. Ezekiel 34. So again, all of this is the background that Jesus comes out of. But what we have here is God promising to bring back his sheep. Now, he's already talking on a metaphorical level because he's saying sheep, not people, but sheep. So we have to question, okay, how literal do we press this? Well, that's something you have to decide on your own. But he'll bring back his sheep into their land from being scattered by the day of distress, which for Ezekiel would have been the exile. But even after the exile, Israel didn't all come back into the land. When, when Israel returned from exile, when Cyrus gave the decree and sent them back, a lot of them stayed in the Persian Empire. Places like Susa, that's where Esther was eventually married King Xerxes. So like Esther and other, they stayed in exile. And a number of Jews stayed down here in Egypt, Alexandria. And, and so there became, even after the exile back from, from the Babylonian captivity, Israel still remained voluntarily scattered around the world. So the promises of returning from exile began to be fulfilled in the, in the return of like Nehemiah and Ezra and those, but not to the extent that the prophets 
spoke of, which then let, gives the idea that there will one day be a fuller return of Israel to the land. Now, the New Testament gives a unique spin to all of this that we'll see next week because Jesus comes along and says, hey, uh, by the way, I'm the new Israel and I'm the new temple and all of God's people will come through me. So we have to figure out how that plays into how we read Old Testament prophecies. But the general flow is that God himself will be Israel's shepherd. And then there's going to be this renewing of the land. He talks about good pasture and they're grazing on the mountains of Israel. And, and at this point, Israel, I mean, it wasn't barren, but it wasn't exactly lush after you know, warfare and captivity and everything. So there's a promise of that. Then in chapter 36 is the famous promise of the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, beginning somewhere around verse 22 to 24. This should be one of those chapters that you highlight in your Bible and always know where it is. This is the parallel to Jeremiah 31 that we looked at last week. Jeremiah 31 says, I'll make a new covenant. Your sins will be forgiven. It won't be like the old covenant. Ezekiel 36 says the same thing. Starting in verse 22, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you've gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. The purpose of God restoring Israel is to show the nations God's glory. Why? Because what was the original promise to Abram? Through your offspring, all the nations will be blessed. God's trying to reach the nations. Here it is, verse 24. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people. I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and make it plentiful and will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. Then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds and you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices. I want you to know that I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, O house of Israel. Not a seeker-sensitive message <laughs> at all, but this is the context in which the promise of, in 36, the new covenant is given. God wants Israel to know that He's going to bring them back. And, and at the time, this is Israel exiled in a foreign land. He's saying, I'm going to bring you back into your land. I'm going to put a new spirit in you. I'm going to sprinkle you with clean water and you'll be clean. There's allusions to the sacrificial priestly imagery there. The question then, again, is how do we read this? Literal? If we read this literal, then what this teaches is that God at some point is going to bring ethnic Jews back into Israel, into their land, and make it beautiful. If you're dispensationalist, you say, well, that's happening now with the 
people flying Jews back into Israel and, and the settlements and everything like that, and we're part of it. If you're historic premillennial, you say this is going to happen in the millennium when Jesus returns and sets up and does literally draw back, draw all his people back into the land. If you're amillennial, you say, hold on a minute, this is in context of the new covenant. So if the sprinkling with clean water, if the putting of a new heart and giving a new spirit, if that happened through Jesus, then this too began to happen through Jesus. And people did begin to come into Israel, which in Ezekiel's day was symbolized and signified in the prophecy by the land. But in the New Testament, we read that the land is expanded and is the world in Jesus through his reign. And it will be consummated when he returns not beginning when he returns. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time on Ezekiel. I do want to just walk through the rest, though. In 37 is the famous passage about the Valley of the Dry Bones. And that vision is given as, as basically the entire nation of Israel is seen as this Valley of Bones that are just dry and dead, unclean, impure. And then God's Spirit, it's interesting that it's always the Spirit that does the animating, is breathed into them and, and they resurrect. And so a lot of people have said this is, this is a foreshadowing or this is a vision, not just of God bringing Israel back into the land, but of the final resurrection on Judgment Day when God will raise everyone bodily and will judge, will separate the sheep and the goats. And the promise of reuniting Israel under the ruler of David. Verse 25, I will live in the land I gave my servant Jacob. The land where your fathers lived, they and their children, and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I'll make a covenant of peace with them, an everlasting covenant. So the idea is, does this promise of David and a covenant peace, did that begin with the, the arrival of Jesus, the son of David? And are we kind of living that out? Or is this something that's going to happen when Jesus returns, sets up his millennial kingdom? Two ways to read it. It depends on where you come from. 38 and 39 are two oracles against this person, country, entity named Gog. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Prophesy against him and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. And that word chief prince that's where that word rosh in Hebrew, and it just means head, like your head. And that was a way you talk about a prince. Is the, the, just like you'd say the head of an army, the head of a clan, rosh. Um, so does that talk about Russia? Not if you speak Hebrew or Russian, but if you speak English and people don't know better, you can convince them. The, right here in 38, verse 1, and then this is a key thing. In 39, verse 1, it reads almost identically. Son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. And both times it says, I will turn you around and drag you along. Um, the, what you have in Ezekiel, and this is interesting, especially when you later read the book of Revelation, you have two accounts of the defeat of this nation, or person called Gog. There's two accounts. It's described in 38 of God letting them or, or guiding them to surround his people, his city, and then destroying them. 
And then in 39, it's the same thing. They surround the city and then they're destroyed. And both times there's this gruesome image of the birds of the air called to feast on their remains. And just this very, remember, apocalyptic was, was very visually overpowering. It was shocking. It was, it was meant to be um, unforgettable. And so reading through this chapter and the visual of what's going on there is pretty uh, vivid. But it's the same thing. 38 and 39 are two depictions of the same thing. Just make a note of that somewhere because it'll be important when you get to Revelation 20 and the whole millennium debate. It'll be very important, I think. But the fact is in 38 and 39, you have two depictions of the final defeat of Gog and the birds are said to feast on the remains of the army. And as a result, Israel will be restored from all the nations, kept safe from danger. Warfare weaponry will be destroyed, all this stuff. Now, on this map here, Magog was loosely up here. So land of the north, well, this is Israel. So north of Israel is just kind of all this. It was just this, this area. And so Gog is either a, a prince of there or, or some kind of ruler. Um, the king, something like that. But the thing is, during Israel's day, when he's writing, Gog or Magog was like the far reaches of the earth. It was this unknown. We don't, we don't know anything about it. There's no mention of any Gog that's ever been recorded, at least. And so up until this point in Ezekiel, all the oracles that were given against these nations, they were nations that Israel was familiar with like Egypt and Philistia and all these, Edom. And, but Gog is like uh, Doug Stewart in that same commentary that I quoted from. He says, he says it's like if Gog, Magog, functioned to Israel of that day as Timbuktu would function for readers today. He's talking about how to preach on it. You know, if we say from here to Timbuktu. Now, there, there is a place called Timbuktu. I have no idea where it is. I mean, it's somewhere a, a far away in Asia somewhere and, but it's it's it doesn't nobody means when when you use the phrase Timbuktu nobody it, it means this unreachable unreachable ends of the earth as far as you can get he argues that that's how Magog would have sounded to the readers of Ezekiel just this far off and all the nations that are mentioned here that come with him Meshach and Tubal and they're just these far away nations and so the point that's being presented in 38 and 39 is this, this convergence on Israel of, or on God's people Israel of evil and, and oppressive nations from all corners of the earth, basically, from all around converging. So it's, it's laid out to describe this battle that looks hopeless. And then all of a sudden God intervenes rains down hailstones and executes his judgment and uses plague and bloodshed and, and, and all this stuff to show his holiness. So God's people are surrounded. They look like they're on the verge of destruction and then God intervenes and wipes out their enemies. So to, to describe this as a modern nation coming and attacking Israel presupposes that modern nations are either all good or all evil and that, that God does... I mean. It's like if somebody says, well, this is talking about Russia. Well, what about the millions of Christians in Russia? Are they part of it or do they just stay home? And let the, you know, what about the Christians serving in the Russian army that are following order? Hey, you've got to go in. All of these questions that come up, they have to be answered. And it's important to realize that the text in Ezekiel is not given in a purely historical context. This is in the middle or is this is the culmination 
of Ezekiel's apocalyptic, prophetic declaration of God's ultimate purposes for his people. So we have to ask when we read it, how literal do we take this? Is this final battle? Some Christians have said there will be a final battle in the end. God's, they'll, they'll surround Israel and God will save his people. And at the time, because this will be at the end of the millennium, Israel will be governed by Jesus, and it will be Jew and Gentile together, and God will rescue, intervene, and that will be final judgment. And other people say, or Israel was describing all of this to show the ideal plan of God, and God's people, the land, the temple, has all been redefined around Jesus. So what this promises is that at the end, there will be opposition of an unparalleled nature to God's people, Israel, the Israel of God, wherever they are in the world, and God will intervene and save His people. And would, that'd be an amillennial reading. They'd say this isn't describing a final literal battle because you can't have all of God's people in one city now because they're over a billion, for instance. So, again, it's a question of who, who is Israel here and what's going on and how do we read that? How do we approach it? Some people would say this is a depiction of the final demonic or, or evil uprising against God's people. At the time, it's used as these, these powerful nations were used, but God was no more trying to get Ezekiel to see that these literal nations were going to come attack literal Israel than he was trying to get to see Ezekiel that he literally rides around on a four-wheeled chariot throne carried by beasts with eyes all over them, which is how Ezekiel's vision opens. You know, God's riding on a chariot that has four wheels, and the wheels go in any direction. Same, same prophet, same book. So we have to say, to what degree is Ezekiel speaking? Is the message about the enemies that are going to attack Jerusalem? Or is the message about the safety that God's people can count on until the end? The last sections, 42, 40 through the end, is Ezekiel gets a vision of what looks like a temple. Chapters 40 through 43, he sees this temple up on a high mountain. Uh, and he clearly says it's a vision. He's in the Spirit. He's taken to this place in a vision. He sees it. So he's not looking at literal Jerusalem because the description of the land and, and the temple and everything doesn't fit literal Jerusalem. But in 40 through 43, he has a vision of a new temple area. In 44 through 46, he gets a vision of the inhabitants of the land and, and the people that function in the temple, like the Levites and priests. And then in 47 and 48, the vision moves on to describe the land and how it's divided up among the tribes of Israel. And even the land division is not like it was originally given in the Old Covenant. It's, it's like these horizontal... It's like is, he sees the land divided into a rectangle like this and then cut up into strips. And you'd have to read through and, and look on a map and you could see, but basically it's like each tribe gets a horizontal strip of the land and the temple's in the middle and it takes up all the land and it's very non-literal in what we know about Israel. And then at the end he sees this final vision of a river flowing out of the temple. And the very last section says he sees the, the city. And it's interesting that he sees the end of his vision, the culmination of everything is is a new Jerusalem. And it's, it's, he, he sees it in images that he as a priest would be very familiar with. There's priests, there's sacrifices, there's, you know, it's, it's the ideal worship. It's what, if Israel had kept Torah, what it might have looked like or hinted at. 
That's the vision that Ezekiel sees at the end. And it says, uh, the very last verse, and the name of the city from that time on will be Yahweh Shammah. The Lord is there. So it ends with the city being named God is there. Now it's very significant for understanding when we get to the New Testament because a New Testament prophet will also receive a vision of a new city and a new creation. And the key component of Revelation 21-22 is that God and the Lamb will be there and dwell in the city. So Revelation is going to build off of Ezekiel. So we have, a, we have to be familiar with these before jumping into other passages because John's assuming when we get to Revelation that his readers know Ezekiel already. You have to decide. There's the two ways that the two historical Christian views have taken this. Premillennial, has, historic premillennial has said this is an image of what will be the new temple in God's millennial kingdom. This is, this is a description of the conditions of the millennium. Because there are still earthly and historic type things being talked about. The problem that that runs up against is one of the things that's mentioned repeatedly is that there will be priests and sacrifices. And the New Testament makes it crystal clear that the sacrifices ended in Jesus. So I've heard premillennials say, well, they won't be sacrifices for sin. They'll be sacrifices commemorating Jesus' sacrifice. Whether you buy that or not, that's up to you. The other is they say, well, the sacrifices are just symbolic. They're not literal or, or there won't be literal sacrifices in the temple. That's just symbolizing the ongoing presence of Jesus, who was the true sacrifice that will be with his people. Fair enough. But now you're getting into very unliteralistic interpretations of this. If that's not literal, then why a literal temple at all? Why can't the temple be an image of something? Which is what a millennial would say. They'd say this is an image of the end. The final, after Jesus comes back, new heavens, new earth. And for Ezekiel, who was a priest exiled in a foreign land, what better image for him to convey to the people of restored worship of God than an idealized, perfected vision of Torah-abiding Israel? And then in the New Covenant, we find out, oh yeah, there, this city won't be... There, Revelation will talk about there won't be a temple. That's the one thing missing from the New Jerusalem is a temple. Because the entire city is the temple. Because the entire city is the bride of Christ. It's Jesus. And He is the temple. So, you have to decide. How do we... Do, do we is this descriptive of something that's going to happen in the future? Or is it a, an idealized presentation to give the image or the message that the future hope of God's people will be beyond anything they can imagine, even if it's communicated within the bounds of what they already know, which is temple, priest, sacrifices, altar. That's what they know. So using that, but ratcheting it up a degree so that it, it, it hints or shadows, foreshadows the coming new creation. I spent time on Ezekiel because we're not going to spend a ton of time on Zechariah, but rather I've given you the passages in Zechariah it's interesting to note that the majority of direct quotations from Zechariah in the New Testament happened during the passion narratives of Jesus. Because Zechariah emphasizes more than any other book in the Old Testament except the book of Isaiah, excuse me, the role of the Messiah, the coming Messiah. And this is one cool thing to point out in Zechariah. It is 
in chapter 3 and chapter 6, the high priest who's said both times to be a symbol of the coming branch, which is an allusion to one who will branch up, who will a stump will ri- a shoot will rise out of Jesse, the, the Davidic ruler, the branch. The person who's said to symbolize him in the vision, like God says, Zechariah, take a crown, put it on this priest's head. That's going to signify that this coming branch will be both a priest and a king. Well, the guy whose head he puts it on is the high priest whose name is Yeshua or Joshua. And Jesus' name is Yeshua. So it is even the name is right of as far as like, I'm going to get a guy named Jesus to symbolize the future Jesus who actually is going to. So it's, it's an interesting thing to note. But Zechariah, knowing apocalyptic and, and, and having it some type of introduction to it, read through Zechariah and then ask yourself the questions. How do we interpret these events? How is and then what's the overall message? It's the same as Ezekiel. There's restoration from exile. There's destruction of God's enemies. And there's Yahweh dwelling with his people in Mount Zion. And so this is what we see as cumulative of all of the Old Testament apocalypse and prophets is that there, though there will be a final battle of some type, whether it's literal, nations, or whether it's symbolic, uh, spiritual, us versus evil, God will win. He'll destroy all of the threats to his people. And then he'll not just keep them safe, but he'll actually dwell with them there. And they'll worship him in harmony. So, um, let's look at Daniel real quick. We looked at Daniel 2. Turn to Daniel 7. Now, we could spend, you could do an entire course just on Daniel. Uh, because it's, it's so rich, but it's, it's a short book. It's only 12 chapters, and it's set up in a perfect chiasm uh, and with, with parallels and everything. There's just a lot of really cool stuff about Daniel. But Daniel 7, Daniel has, this, he has a dream, and he writes it down. Verse 2, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea, Four beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. Now, this is important in apocalyptic, and not just apocalyptic, in the prophets and in, in, in ancient thought, especially Israelite thought. The sea is seen as the source or the origin of evil and chaos. In the ancient Near East, in the world of ancient Near East, which is this area, the sea, which would be this, was, this, was seen as where evil sprang from. And the word sea, there were a couple of words that could use to describe it. One of the words that was used to describe the sea was abusas, the abyss. And that's the phrase when Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee and he calms the storm. That's the word that Luke uses in that one instance is the abusas, the abyss. The idea is that, for, especially for a non-seafaring people, which is what Israel were, was, the sea represented chaos, it represented uncertainty, it represented fear, all of the sturdiness and the steadiness of land is gone. It's just deep and dark and scary, and there are big things that live in it. We know because we catch them in our nets, or they eat our bait. And we, you know, there's just there, there's a fear of the sea. And so in Daniel's vision, he sees the sea churning, and these beasts come out of it. First beast was like a lion, but it had wings of an eagle. It goes on, and there's a second beast. It looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its side, and it had three ribs in its mouth. It's interesting that the Medo-Persian Empire, which was sort of a combination of, of t- the Medes 
and the Persians. Media was the least powerful of the two. Persia was the dominant one in this two-pronged empire. So the bear raised up on one side, as a lot of people said, that's probably symbolic. And during the time, three kingdoms were destroyed or conquered by Medo-Persia, Lydia, the, Chalde the Chaldeans, and Egypt. So people say, well, that's probably what the three ribs that this bear thing is chomping on represent. Almost every scholar, uh, evangelical scholars across the board pretty much agree that that second beast is the Medo-Persian Empire. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings and four heads. This third beast is the empire of Greece. Uh, Alexander the Great rose and swiftly, like a leopard, conquered all of this. Just flew through and conquered it. And after his death, his empire was split up into four. Four generals. And then those four generals fought, and then two rose to power, and then eventually... And that's what the next section in Daniel is about. After that, in my vision, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man, and its mouth spoke boastfully. So this fourth beast is two interpretations have been given. One says this is uh, representative of the, what came after Alexander, which was the Seleucid Empire, which was part of was Greece, but it was a section of it. And this little horn is this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes. He, was, he persecuted the Jewish people in the Holy Land to an extreme degree. <coughs> Made them renounce their culture, tried to spread Hellenization, the Greek culture everywhere, and if they didn't obey, then they were mercilessly put down. Um, just, just he was as bad as they come. In fact, the next section, and Daniel talked about Antiochus, went into the Holy of Holies, walked right into the middle of it, placed something, some people say it was a meteorite or something, but it was like dedicated to Zeus, and then sacrificed a pig on the altar of the temple to Zeus. And Daniel describes this later chapter as the abomination of desolation. This, this, you can't get more blasphemous than that. Sacrificing a pig on the altar in the Holy of Holies to Zeus. In the Old Testament language, that's as bad as it gets. And so he became the archetype for every evil, um, destructive, godly, oppressing leader that would come after him. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes was, he, he, it's like you calling somebody a modern Hitler. Before modern Hitler, it was Antiochus back then. You would say this person's like Antiochus, just from, from how awful he was. Read the intertestamental books the books that are called the Apocrypha, if you read the books of Maccabees, they tell all about Antiochus and the rebellion that the Maccabean family basically instigated and started and eventually was able to overthrow uh, and, and rededicate the temple, Hanukkah, all that fun stuff. But other people have said, no, this fourth empire is not the Seleucid Empire. This is the Roman Empire. It's different than all the others. It's more fearsome than all the others. It, it's, it has iron teeth. It just devours everything because Rome came in after and, and took over everything. And this little horn is one of the Roman 
rulers, generals, who set himself up as, as God. Um, or one of the emperors, I mean, like Nero or Domitian, these emperors who demanded worship. So, that, so even on these details, people are just uh, split on it. With Rome, only after they died would people declare that they had been raised up and deified. Nero was so, well, maybe we'll talk about this in Revelation, maybe not, but the reason that he was seen as so crazy was he was the first emperor during, while he was alive, to say, I am God, I am Apollo in the flesh. And then no emperor did that again until Domitian, who was the emperor when Revelation was being written. He was kind of like Nero reincarnate. But, um, but, but in, among Rome, back earlier in the Greek generals and everything, they, they wouldn't declare to be God. They would declare, you worship our gods or else. Uh, and that's what we see with Antiochus. But in the middle of this vision, this is what's interesting. Verse 9 so, so Daniel's had this vision, these four beasts are rising up, these four empires, and, and the fourth one especially has just got these, these rulers, and one of the rulers is really bad. Then I looked, and thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool, his throne was flaming with fire, and his wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him, the court was seated and books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words that the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And then Daniel goes on and gets the interpretation of this. But this, this one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven, you have the Ancient of Days, God on the throne, and then... Daniel sees, Daniel sees the Ancient of Days. He sees the churning sea and, and the beasts down here. And then he sees one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. And he approaches the Ancient of Days, which means he's coming. And N.T. Wright talks about this a lot, not in this book, but he, he the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds is the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days. It's from earth, or, or it's just coming towards the throne. In the New Testament, this is important, because when you read the New Testament, passages where Jesus talks about the coming of the Son of Man in the clouds, most of us just assume that he's talking about his return. But the Old Testament context, the Son of Man coming on the clouds, was always descriptive of him approaching the throne. And as a result of him approaching the throne, this one like a son of man, and son of man is just the normal Hebrew way of saying human being. So this one like a human being approaches the throne and he's given all authority and he's worshiped. Now the problem with this is for a good Hebrew man like Daniel, no one is worshiped except God alone. Ancient of Days is the only one who's worshipped.
but then he sees a vision of this one like a son of man who approaches the Ancient of Days throne and is given all authority and worship. And what we find out in the New Testament this is exactly what Jesus claims of his ascension. His raised up after his death, his resurrection, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He's given all authority, all dominion. What did he say to his followers in Matthew 28 just before he was taken up in the cloud of heaven? All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations. So the New Testament will flesh this out with Jesus, which is why Son of Man was Jesus' favorite title for himself. More than any other, he never called himself Son of God, always called himself Son of Man. And it wasn't because he was emphasizing his humanity. That's the interesting thing in the Bible. Son of Man emphasizes his deity, if anything. Because the Son of Man is worshipped. Son of God is just the normal way in Hebrew, in Israelite, you'd say king. All the kings were the Son of God. That's the title, Son of God. Um, they were seen as God's Son ruling over Israel. But Son of Man, the way Jesus uses it, very interesting, which we can't begin to get into here. Um, so anyway, in this, he sees this vision. And then if you read through the rest, um, of Daniel, you see that these beasts are judged, they're overthrown. It's, it's the Son of Man's kingdom that's set up and it reigns forever. Chapter 11 is this, Daniel has a, a first he, he, he encounters this man, and just like in a lot of apocalypses, this angelic emissary comes and gives him this message as he's praying, because Daniel is praying because he, he realizes, he says, I was studying book of Jeremiah. It's one of the few references in the Old Testament to, to another Old Testament book. Daniel says he was reading and studying Jeremiah and he realized that the captivity was almost over. Because Jeremiah had, God had said through Jeremiah, you're going to be in exile for 70 years. Jeremiah 29, 11, that famous, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you. That goes on to say, you're going to be in Babylon for 70 years. That's my plan for you. So get comfortable. Well, Daniel knows that. He read Jeremiah. He's been meditating on it. And he also knows from Leviticus and Deuteronomy that God had said if his people are ever exiled, at the end of their exile, if they cry out to him in repentance and seek him with everything, that he will bring them back into the land. So Daniel does that in chapter 11. And actually, he does it in chapter 9 as well. But then he has this vision, and this man comes and tells him in chapter 11 what's going to happen between these kings of the north and king of the south. And so if you're Israel, if this is Israel where the land and everything, then the king of the north, somewhere from this area, king of the south, is going to be from Egypt. Those are the two. Um, instead of walking through, because it's probably the most detailed, so detailed to the point that uh, text critical and liberal scholars have said this is prophecy written after the fact, and it matches chronology too well if you know who these king of the north and king of the south are up to a certain point and then he gets it wrong is what they say but rather than doing that I'm just giving you an excerpt from Old Testament Bible background commentary that can that walks verse by verse and gives the background history of what was going on in Daniel so that you can see does this if you care, some of you may not, you know, it gets pretty detailed historically. But if you want to look into it, you can see how it, it played out. Uh, 
Daniel chapter 11. After this section of the kings of the north and the south, which you can kind of get the background, in Daniel 11, there's this final king, maybe around verses 31 or so, and like this final king that we see who raises himself up, does as he pleases. Um, it talks about verse 31, his armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation and with flattery he will corrupt those who violated the covenant. But people who know their God will firmly resist him. That is talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, he did desecrate the temple fortress in 167 BC. That's when he sacrificed the pig on the altar to Zeus. That's when he, he, he made the sacrifices stop. Like he put an end to sacrifices in the Holy Land. And so what we read in Daniel, it very much describes Antiochus Epiphanes. And, and, and Daniel's message goes on to say, to talk about, but his, his reign will only last so long. Daniel says it will only last till the time of, of 2300 sacrifices like 2300 day or 22 yeah 2300 days and some people have said is that you know that's 2300 days or since there were morning and evening sacrifices it's really 1150 days regardless however you work it out christians have worked out this chronology all every way possible the main message is that this king who would set himself up who would oppress god's people who would abolish the sacrifices who would put it into it his reign would only last a certain amount of time. And, it, and, it, and we see it ended up not lasting that long. He was overthrown. Uh, the last chapter of Daniel, chapter 12, he has a vision of the end. And, and it's, it's finally the end end. Like there are many times in prophecy where the end means just the end of the period that they're in. But this one is, is the end end. Because he sees... Um, where is it? Verse, yes, chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress, such as not happened from the beginning of the nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. And then he goes on and talks. So there's this, this sense that Daniel ends with, with Daniel not even knowing what all of this means. You, you read at the end of Daniel's prophecy sometimes where it says, I was deeply troubled and, and I pondered the matter. And he doesn't ever give a description. Daniel is like an apocalyptic book waiting for events to fulfill it in order to make sense of it. If that makes sense. And what we see by the time you get to Revelation is Revelation says a lot of these events in Daniel have begun to start happening, have begun to take place in the time of Revelation, in the time of Jesus and his arrival. You know, with the arrival of the Son of Man, Daniel just saw Son of Man, like a human being, don't know what's going on. He approaches the throne. He's given all power. This fourth beast is judged. We see in the New Testament that Jesus comes along during the reign of that fourth beast, Rome. He's raised up. He's given power. Eventually, his people do survive, and that beast empire is destroyed. Um, 
by the simple fact that we're here and Rome's not. So there, there's so much to look at. There's so many issues. Read through, kind of, kind of read through these chapters on your own sometime. And keeping in mind the idea of apocalyptic and everything we've talked about, the question will be, when, and, th- and this is the overall point of, of even touching on these chapters, when you hear people talk about, like the teaching that I read, being so clear on what the Bible says about these nations and end times and this and that, when you listen to modern teachers, a lot of times, not all, but a number of modern teachers will read you prof- pa- passages from Ezekiel or Daniel or Zechariah, and they'll read them assuming, and won't even stop to question that it's all describing stuff that's still to happen. But the purpose in reading Daniel and, and seeing the references to Antiochus Epiphanes and what all was going on, and the reason I gave you the background handout, is to show that a lot of these prophecies, or at least a good deal of what was given, already saw fulfillment in history. Like, like they, they, that, that king of the north and king of the south and all that, they already rose up. It happened. And the question that the New Testament reader will have especially is when New Testament figures use Old Testament imagery of events that already happened in the Old Testament to describe events in their day, what do they mean? What's, what does that mean for how we read the Old Testament? Does that mean that Old Testament prophecies can have an initial fulfillment and then foreshadow or point towards a greater fulfillment in the future? Or is, is there, or do we do like um, dispensations have said and say, no, you, you read the Old Testament prophecies literally, and the ones that haven't happened yet, it's because we're in this 2,000-year parentheses. So God hasn't done any of these things yet. We're waiting for all that to happen, but it won't happen until we're raptured. And all, those are kind of the assumptions that go into it. And, and as readers of Scripture, it's your job to read the passages in their context and ask yourself these questions. What could this possibly mean? And on some passages, if Daniel himself, who's described as one of the wisest and godliest men ever, was deeply troubled or puzzled, and he was the one that received the visions and wrote them, don't, don't beat yourself up too bad if you can't understand. You're just getting a flavor and an understanding and so that you know how much is out there. And the main thing is be very discerning and be, to a healthy degree, be skeptical when you hear people start using the Bible to talk about what's going to happen in the future. Have that Berean mindset where you go, wait a minute, I'm going to assert the scriptures because I don't know about all this. Because there's so many people who are making so much money off of the fact that Christians don't do that. You just sort of assume because you like the person speaking. And, 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 and do that with, with me or Talbot or anybody who preaches or speaks or talks about the future or, or end times or anything like that. Because you would do that in every other area of, of study. You know? so, so I hold myself to the same level of of healthy skepticism on your part that I would say to give to other people.